And so now, Lord Jesus Christ, we um, invite you into our midst. We know that you are always with us through faith. And um, yet now, as we study the written word, we ask that you, the word made flesh, would be um, tangibly manifest in our midst, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth, the truth of your gospel, the truth of your love for us, made manifest in your death and resurrection. So we ask all of this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, um, we ha- we're going to do a little quick recap, um, which hopefully will be helpful. Um, do you see the first thing on your page? I have the book of signs versus the book of glory. Does anybody, it, we're three weeks in, so I'm going to start gently to call on people. Does anybody have, <laughs> oh no, um, does anybody have anything they want to say about the book of signs and the book of glory? Anything you remember from previous weeks, from two weeks ago or from last spring? I'll give you a hint. It's a way of breaking down structurally the Gospel of John that a lot of commentators use because it's a useful tool for designating it, breaking it down and saying, well, this is what we're looking at. When we look at the big picture of John, we're looking at these these things. The book of signs is from 1 to 11. Go and the book of glory is from 12 to 21. Amen. Yeah, and that's and it seems arbitrary, but why do you want to tell us at all about why that is? Wait a minute. <laughs> I know, I know, you didn't sign up for that, <laughs> but you're so, you, but you got it. You're right. The, so chapters one through eleven, we sort of arbitrarily designate the book of signs, but the reason for that is that in one through eleven we see the 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 three years of Jesus's ministry. Time is extended. And it takes 11 chapters to talk about Jesus' ministry. And then time accelerates by the time we get to chapter 12. I think the anointing at Bethany happens very close to the beginning of Passion Week. But chapters um, 12 through 21 take no more than, I mean, they they cover the events of the last week of Jesus' life. And then they go a little bit beyond the resurrection. So we're not sure exactly how much time that took. But time slows down. Why does John slow down time to look at the last week of Jesus' life? He's drawing our attention to it. It is so important that he wants us to really steep ourselves in that last week of Jesus' life. And when we look at the book of signs, and we'll talk some more about the book of glory, the book of signs, does anybody remember there are sort of arbitrarily seven signs that we can identify, and seven is an important biblical number. The reason for that is three being for the Trinity and four being for the four corners of the earth. So the number seven is usually used to designate um, ministry to the Gentiles, believe it or not. And that's something, sorry, that's a little trivia fact that I didn't intend to tell you. So you just ignore that. But the book of signs is um, the signs. Does anybody want to tell us what signs are? And why would we call chapters 1 through 11 the book of signs? They're the miracles. Yeah, they're the miracles. And John calls them semia or signs instead of saying the other words that the other gospel writers use, which are works of power, mighty deeds. But John calls them signs. What, any ideas about why he calls them signs? They're pointing to the revelation. Yeah, you're not supposed to stop right there and set up camp. Rather, the sign is meant just like a road sign to point to the real thing. And the real thing is Jesus' identity 
as the Son of God, as the Word made flesh, as the one sent from the Father who is God himself and not just the Messiah in a human fleshly sense. So you see, um, and you see how the signs reveal his identity. You um, see that they reveal that he is more than just a man. And what, what that does for us is that then when we get to the last week of Jesus' life, the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection are so much deeper when you realize that he is God himself. God himself comes to die for us, and then he conquers death by his own resurrection. Um, and so the signs lead up to Jesus' death and resurrection, and they help us understand them because they reveal to us who Jesus is. And the last and the greatest sign is the sign that we have here in the Gospel of John, the sign of the raising of Lazarus. And um, so and we're going to see next week a little bit more about how, that, how that, this sign, this last sign, is the pivotal point, the flip point into the book of glory, how um, Jesus' um, raising, raising of Lazarus then leads to his own death on the cross. There is, and if any of you saw the film that I showed that first week, that's why I titled my film Rising and Falling. We'll look at that some more next week. But this week, we have a great other thing happening in this passage, and that is the I am statement. Does anybody want to say anything about the I am statements? Do you know what I mean when I say that in the Gospel of John? Now I'm going to get out the whiteboard. Yes. How is he doing that? Well, I can't remember where it first was, but when um, you shall not say, sent me, and God answers, I am, say, I am, I bet, I bet you anything Liz Jones knows exactly where that is. <laughs> yeah, thank you. How did I know you knew that? <laughs> Isn't it? It was Moses. God revealed himself to the Israelites through Moses and said, I am. You know, Moses says, who will I say sent, sent me? And he says, I am sent you. And God reveals his name. And knowing the name of someone, just like today, when you know someone's name, you really know them. How many of us, when we get a telemarketer that doesn't say our real name or doesn't say the name that we go by, um, I've discovered there are a lot of different go-by names in the South that I'm not used to, which is wonderful. I love the discovery of the go-by names, um, you know, whether it's sister or brother or <laughs> um, a family name or a multiple name. And um, one of the things I love about that is that when you really get to know someone, you know what they're called by. You don't know what their name, you know, the name on paper is what the telemarketers use. And that's how you know uh, to not pick up the phone or to hang up really quickly, isn't it? So Jesus, or so Yahweh gives to the Israelites his go-by name because he wants them to call on his name. And his name is Yahweh, which I, I'm writing it this way because that's how it is in the Hebrew, because these are the Hebrew, the, the uh, Latin letters that designate the Hebrew letters Y-H. W H and they would fill in the vowels. We think that the pronunciation would have been Yahweh. And so there came to be this great um, love for the name of Yahweh and this great holiness that the holiness of God himself was associated with the name Yahweh. And so religious and faithful Hebrews would not utter the name of Yahweh, which we can argue about that later on. God gives us his name so we would call upon it. Um, but they, they 
came to back away from it because, out of reverence for God, out of, um, fe- out of the fear of the Lord, out of reverence for his holiness. But his name, um, his name is the very heart of who he is. And so when Jesus is then identifying himself with the name of God, because they wouldn't say, I am. So if God's name is a verb, then they would avoid using the verb. They would go into these circumlocutions so that they wouldn't say the verb, I am. And Jesus does not do this. In fact, we see in, um, in a few places in John's Gospel, at the end of chapter 8, we also see it twice in chapter 18, that Jesus just says, I am. At the end of chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. What happens? They pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he said the divine name. He's associating himself with God the Father. And then in chapter 18, when he is arrested in Gethsemane, they ask, um, they say, where is this man, Jesus or, Jesus, or something of that sort? And he says, I am he, which in the Greek is literally just I am. And they all fall down, just like they would fall down and worship Yahweh. They're just so stunned. Who knows what's going on there? It's really, we'll get to that um, hopefully next semester, or maybe the semester after that. But it's beautiful. Jesus is using the name of God. There are other I am statements that are not just the use of I am, but where Jesus is saying I am, and then it's followed by a direct object. If you remember your grammar, direct object immediately follows the verb, and it helps you understand the subject better. Jesus says I am the fill in the blank, and he uses all sorts of those, and he does that to help reveal more about his own identity and about the Father, what it means, what is God like to us, and what it, what's so beautiful about it is that Jesus uses very tangible terms, um, very interesting images to help us understand more about who he he is. Does anybody remember? Uh, this is total trivia, so if you remember it, great. I'm going to give you some references so you can find them. Does anybody remember any of the I am statements that we find in John's Gospel? There are seven of them. Yes? Which one's that? Uh-huh. Which one's that? <laughs> Six. And it's also used in variation bread of he- bread from heaven. Anybody know another one? Yeah. Uh, you know, he says he is, but he never says it in an I am statement. Isn't that funny? But but he does liken himself to he has the living water that he provides. Um, there's here's a big hint. It's in our chapter for today. Can if, yeah, that's a good one. That's the last one that we see. 1515. 15. There's one right before it, too, in the chapter before it. Oops. Yes, that's in our chapter for today. The resurrection and the life. Excuse me. Does anybody want to look up these two? And that one? I am the doe of the sheep. Yeah, and that one sometimes is called the gate, depending on your translation. So we get two in John 10. We looked at them last semester. Mm-hmm. And it's also in 9.5, isn't it? 
anybody know what this one is, the last one in 14? Mm-hmm. We'll look at these two soon. But so today, we see that Jesus is saying this fifth statement, I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to talk some more about that. But suffice it to say that each one of these direct objects reveals things about Jesus and about God the Father. Um, you know, through Jesus, we have all, all the spiritual sustenance we need. He's the bread of life. Through Jesus, his light shines in the dark world of sin and suffering and death. And he reveals the truth to us through his light. Um, he is the way into the sheepfold, the way into the church, the way into the community of believers, the people of God. The way to heaven is through Jesus. He's the door and the gate. Can't get there except that you go through him. He's the good shepherd who provides for all of our needs materially, spiritually. He is the resurrection and the life. He not just um, brings about the resurrection and the life, but Jesus himself has life in and of himself, and he bestows life, abundant life, eternal life on those who believe in him. And we'll look into the way, the truth, and the life, and the vine later on. I'll, get, I'll give you a little cliffhanger. Um, so all of that is our context for this passage. If anybody remembers from two weeks ago, um, where was Jesus? Do you remember? He was... Um, he got word that Lazarus, his friend, was sick. The one he loves was sick. And did he go immediately? Yeah. He tarried. What was he doing? Why did he wait? Does anybody remember why he waits? Yeah. Yeah, waiting for four days because the spirit of the dead, um, they believed in that first century, they believed, and the Hebrew belief was that the departed, the dead person's spirit or soul would hover until it saw the decomposition on the fourth day and then it would say, no, that, that's not me anymore. I'm out of here and go away and depart. And so one of the things, it, as Jesus tarries by that fourth day, the miracle of the raising of Lazarus is even more amazing because it's not a resuscitation. It's not bringing someone, oh, they were only sort of dead or they just died like Jairus' daughter or like the widow of Nain's son in the other Gospels. No, this um, Lazarus was really dead. He was dead. He was in the tomb. He had begun to decompose. could only take the Lord of life, the creator of all, to bring someone that dead back from the dead. So um, more glory is given to Jesus, and in fact, more of his identity is revealed as the life giver, as the one who is one with the Father, the creator of the world. Um, so let's go to John. We're going to John. We're beginning in verse 17, and then um, what we'll do is we'll each read a couple verses. So if you feel like you would like to read, just read a couple of verses, and then we'll um, go on and let someone else read, and we're going to go to verse 37. So we're going to read a good 20 verses. I'll start us off. And you can hear this right here, Mary Kay, and what's saying. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. 
So what do you, is there anything you notice as we read this about Mary and Martha and Jesus? I asked at the end of last week, so one of the questions I carried over for this week was, how do Martha and Mary relate differently to Jesus? What's the same about their interaction with him? Do you notice anything that's the same? They say, yeah, they both believe in him. They both say, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the same thing. And, you know, I never noticed that until I wrote the screenplay for the film I showed two, you know, three weeks ago, which was that I had to, I was going off of the text of scripture as much as possible for the lines that in the dialogue in the screenplay. And I thought, wait a second, I have to give Martha and Mary the same line. They have the same line. They say the same thing when they see him. And yet, they approach him in different ways. What do you think is different about the way they, they both encounter him? Mary fell, like a, fell on, his feet, on her feet. She's, always, she's, she's always falling on her feet. Yeah. She's always on her feet before Jesus. It's kind of interesting. You know, in Luke, when we see Martha and Mary at the dinner, and Martha's saying, why don't you get my sister to help me out in the kitchen? Mary, where's Mary? She's sitting at his feet, isn't she? <laughs> She, well, yeah, and then, in, and then in 12, she's washing his feet. So she sits at his feet, and she learns from him here, and then she washes his feet and prepares him for burial. We're going to look at that in two weeks in chapter 12. And here, I think she's falling down in worship. Mm-hmm. She's falling down in her grief. She's, falling, she's just falling down all over the place, but she's falling down in her grief. So she's collapsing. 
I know, I love that. I think of the women were at the foot of the cross, which is so interesting and so beautiful. And Mary Magdalene also falls at the feet of Jesus when she sees him after he's risen from the dead. She falls at his feet. And I often imagine there are also some of the men who fall at Jesus' feet. Peter falls at his feet after the miraculous catch and says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I don't think it says explicitly at the end of John 20 that um, that. Thomas, doubting Thomas, falls at Jesus' feet when he sees the marks. But I sort of always imagine that he does fall at his feet because he says, my Lord and my God. It's a confession of faith that's so clear. Um, so Mary's here falling at his feet. And what is Martha doing? When, when she's first in there. She's fussing and cleaning in Luke. And here she's kind of saying, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. What is I think they're saying the same thing, but I th- and I, I don't know if you saw this in the film. I think they're saying it in different ways. I think Mary is grieving and, and weeping, grieving and sorrowful. And Martha doesn't seem so sorrowful. She seems grieving. But what's another emotion that you often have when you're grieving? It's one of the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. Blame, anger, frustration. If you'd been here, you wouldn't have died. It's more, and she's more of an, there's a little bit more. She's approaching Jesus from the head in some ways because then they have this theological conversation um, after it, which is really interesting. And what is so interesting to me about the way Jesus approaches each woman? Well, first of all, Jesus goes out to encounter them in Bethany. He's going to encounter them just like he encounters us. Um, We often are encountered by Jesus when we weren't even looking for him. And sometimes we're looking for him and we, we get to encounter him. And sometimes we're looking for him and he, he doesn't meet us necessarily. He waits for us. And we have to wait for him. But here Jesus goes out to encounter them and they both run out to see him. And as he encounters them, I would say he is the quintessential pastor here. Um, I, I don't, one of the great things about being, um, being a minister is you get to be with people. It's an honor. It's a holy thing to be with people in the midst of grief and in the midst of suffering. And what you find when you walk into a hospital room is that the climate is always different. People deal with things in different ways. And I see it as one of my jobs. One of my jobs, I think, is to, to okay, what is the what am I walking into? Because you never know what you're walking into until you open the door. What is going on here? Are people sad? Are people joyful? Are they angry? What, what is the climate? What is the emotional climate? What is the spiritual climate like? And that then part of that is, to res- part of that, is that um, the pastor's job is to meet people where they are and perhaps help them get to another place. Um, and I see Jesus doing this. And it reminds me of something that we used to do when I was an actor. And this is an acting exercise that was one of my favorite things. And it might be a little creepy or weird for you to hear it described. So bear with me. But in preparing to go on stage and even just in preparing to play a role, one of the things we would do, and we would do this every week in my acting group, which we would do all sorts of weird warm-ups and exercises that would help you be physically um, relaxed and mentally ready for anything. And one of the things that we'd all be warming up around the room, getting ready, and um, then suddenly, you know, the teacher would call out that we were going to go do mirrors. And so you would find yourself sort of being drawn along, and suddenly, you'd, you know, your partner was, would sort of appear, and you'd encounter this person. You never really consciously chose who'd be. And the whole task of the exercise was to mirror what they were doing. 
and to um, and whether it was and it would be physical mirroring, but it would also be mirroring their face. And you would then also um, mirror some of the things you saw in their eyes. And it would sometimes progress through what was there when you initially encountered. Um, You would find, too, that as both people were mirroring, you kind of didn't know who was starting an action and who was following the action. And you would sort of, there was a unifying aspect. You suddenly found yourself having this deep connection with someone that was nonverbal, um, that was inexplicable, inexplicable and completely dear. You even found after about 15 minutes, and that's usually how long the exercise would sometimes go for 20 minutes, you'd find yourself cycling through um, emotions together, which was weird. Don't tell any of the men this, they'll totally freak out. Um, this is being recorded too. Um, oops. You'd find, yourself, <laughs> you'd find yourself breathing together. Not consciously, because you couldn't plan it. But by the end of 15 minutes, you were breathing together, and I bet you your hearts were going at the same rate. And there was this sense of fellowship. And just someone was with you for those 15 minutes in a way that we're not usually with people. Someone was listening to you, watching you, following you, responding, and you were there for them as well. And so one of the things I think Jesus is doing is he is encountering each woman and the way he encounters them, the way he responds, he's responding to what they're bringing to him. I think they're bringing two different things to him in their grief. I think that Martha is bringing her anger and her frustration. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And how does Jesus respond? She's challenging him and what does he do? Yeah, he cha- well, he challenges her back, I would say. She says, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus makes a theological statement. He's challenging her faith. Her faith is flickering. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Are you who you say you are? Because you're not acting like it. You're not coming to save us. So what's, what's the deal? And Jesus is challenging her by challenging her faith, challenging her belief. Your brother will rise again. That's not what she wanted. She wanted an excuse. She wanted to know, why weren't you here? What's, what are you thinking? Your brother will rise again. And she, then they get into this theological statement. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Here she is stating the belief, the orthodox belief of the Pharisees, in particular, one of the Jewish parties, which was that there would be a resurrection of the dead in the end and and judgment. The Sadducees, which is another religious party within the first century Jews, did not believe this, but Jesus very clearly did. If you want to look at, um, on your own, Acts chapter 23, verse 8, you can see this belief put forward because Paul is in a pickle in Acts 23, and in order to get out of his pickle, he throws out a theological question that he knows will bring all this controversy between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they're distracted from him. And the, and the theological question he throws out there is, is there a resurrection of the dead? And suddenly they're all fighting with each other, and they've forgotten about him, which is good for him. Um, but so here, Jesus is throwing out this question. He's beginning, she's begin, she affirms, she believes this Sadducee, this, uh, excuse me, Pharisee in belief. I know that her brother, she knows that her brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus again challenges her. He challenges her 
um, belief and her faith, and he is trying to get her to believe even more. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I'm in verse 25. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What a challenge. Do you believe this? He's challenging her faith. Martha, do you believe that Jesus can raise um, from the dead those who believe in him? And so um, when he makes this statement, this I am statement, um, he is showing that life, resurrection life, eternal life, abundant life, are tied integrally to faith in him. He himself is the resurrection and the life. He has life in and of himself. It is his to bestow. And then, um, let me just do these two things. And then, through belief in him, even those who die will live. And then, people who believe in him will never die, but will have eternal life. Even if there is an earthly death here, it is not eternal death. Because he, through his own death, will save and deliver each one of us who believes in him from that eternal death. And we, in fact, though we will die, unless we're in that last generation before he returns, though we will die physically, we will, our bodies will be raised and we will not die spiritually and eternally. Liz? Was that... It's so hard. She's got to believe in Jesus in the midst of death. Death, you know, and, and you'll see, you know, her faith is, is pricked and brought along. She says then, after Jesus says this and challenges her, do you believe this? She confesses. She makes a profession of faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's pretty incredible. He brings her along into a deeper um, faith, a deeper profession of her faith. And yet we'll still see later on next week, we're going to see when Jesus wants them to roll away the stone, she says, but Lord, there's a smith. By this time, there will be an odor because he's been dead four days. She believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the, and the life. But when it comes to getting that stone away, she's saying, what are you thinking? You can't do that. Um, so even so, even with her profession of faith, she's human. She's fallen. And there is still some doubt in there. But this is the beautiful thing about her. Does she walk away from Jesus? Does she um, depart in the midst of her suffering and her grief that's manifesting itself in anger? No. And I would say, and I put this on your sheet, that she is like Jacob in Genesis 32. She is like Jacob because she is, um, she is still engaging She's angry, she's struggling in her faith, but she doesn't walk away when Jesus encounters her. She engages him. She wrestles with him. She doesn't give up. And that in and of itself is a measure of faith. And so I think for each of us, when we're angry with Jesus, that's okay. It's okay to be upset with God and to say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because you know what? We're still talking to him. We haven't just walked away. So that in and of itself is a response of faith. Even if it's not perfect faith, it's still a response of faith to God. Okay, Mary. Mary is at his feet. She falls at his feet. She echoes the same reproach, but it's also a statement of faith. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. There is some belief that Jesus could prevent the illness from taking Lazarus' life. How does Jesus respond to Mary when she's weeping at his feet? 
just went with Yeah, do you want to tell us which verse that is? Okay. 35. Verse 35. That's the, um, when Jesus, well, first of all, in verse 33, she falls at his feet. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. There are two words used here. The first one, deeply moved, and no one knows what they mean. The commentators are all, they're all, and the translators, they're all in an uproar because there's no clear translation. So what do they mean? Jesus deeply moved, that word means, very often it means, um, it, it involves a kind of stern warning, a rebuke, a sense of anger even. So why is Jesus angry? What does that mean? He's deeply moved and he's um, upset. He's angry. It's a little bit of both because in the language, the language has a quality of anger about it. And I'm going to go to that. We're going to look at why. Some commentators say they think he's angry with the Jews and with Mary for weeping because don't they see that he is the Lord of life and that death is not um, forever. But I don't think, I don't think that's, that's not the, res- I don't think that's Jesus' response. I mean, we, see, we do see that he weeps. We see that in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. He weeps along with her. He's deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. What does that mean? Well, first of all, Jesus is compassionate. He's compassionate to Mary in her grief, in her sorrow. Um, he also is grieving the loss of Lazarus his friend, his beloved one, he's sorrowful. And sometimes the sorrow of another person triggers our own sorrow, doesn't it? And we weep. Um, and I will say a lot of commentators don't know what to do with this verse. And maybe they're male Western commentators who don't think emotions are important. But expressing emotions, is health, that's a healthy thing to do. And what we see is that the, the Hebrew people in general, culturally, Expressing emotions was a normal and healthy thing in their culture. So it's not weird that this man, Jesus, is crying, weeping, crying his heart out. That's normal in their culture. And in fact, it's a beautiful thing because it shows his compassion. It shows his humanity, his sorrow for death, his sorrow for the loss of his um, beloved friend, and also his sorrow at the sorrow of his beloved Mary. He is meeting her. He's mirroring the emotion he finds in her, and it's also his own emotion too. It's real because he grieves the loss of his friend. Um, so that's why he's weeping. There is this question about the anger. Why is he angry? Is he angry at their faithlessness in not believing that he's the resurrection and the life? I don't think so. They haven't been, um, I don't think he is. Um, in fact, I say, and I believe that Jesus here, as the Lord of life, as the resurrection and the life, he's both weeping, compassionate, sorrowful at the death of his friend. He's also um, righteously angry at death. Isn't that the way God would be? Death is the final enemy, and behind the final enemy is Satan. Um, the final enemy is death, and when God himself, the Lord of life, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who is God, you know, comes into, um, encounters death, and sees death, and has to smell death, and be around death, I say, I believe it's very much like, um, a, a, almost like a reaction, like the way magnetic poles react to each other. You know how two magnets, when they're opposite poles, they jump apart. Jesus, in the physical presence of death, as the Lord of life, he's angry. That death is not going to have its way. 
that death is not going to conquer his loved ones, the ones that believe in him, the ones who have hidden themselves in Jesus, death will not conquer us because Jesus is our champion. Um, and he, by his own death, will free us from death. Um, and so I, I, I want to quote this. Yeah. And could it be that, that Jesus is really foreseeing his own death? It's possible, and I think there is some sense in which he foresees his own death. I don't think he's angry about his own death, though. I no, think no, he's troubled. It could be that he's troubled by his own death, but I think that the troubling about his, like this would be a Gethsemane, I think that that's possible, and there might be some of that in it, but I think that's a little more removed than the direct circumstances. You get to anyone's tomb, you find yourself in a cemetery, and you're going to be upset about the cemetery. You might be thinking about your own death, um, but when it's the death of someone you love who's so close to you, um, it's often, that might be a secondary emotion, but I would say it might not be the primary reason for his emotion. I'm going to read this quote from B.B. Warfield that just makes my heart sing. You don't have all the quotes, so just listen patiently for the first couple lines, and, um, but the, whole, the rest of the quote is on your sheet. It is death that is the object of Jesus' wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. I don't think it's just incidental. I think it's important. It's important for us as we weep. But um, this is um, not the only thing that's going on. Jesus' soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression, and under the impulse of these feelings for us, he has wrought out our redemption. He's moved. He's moved on our behalf. He's angry at death because it's not the way it should be. And he knows that he's going to conquer it. I mean, he's, he's in that um, locker room phase before the game. He's gearing up for the conquest. He's about to conquer death by raising Lazarus from the dead and then by going to his own death and resurrection. So what about Mary and Martha? I give you, um, as a parting thought, I give you Matthew um, chapter 12, verse 20. And um, there, uh, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 42, verse 3, and talks about the Messiah, prophecy about the Messiah. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Just arbitrarily, and yet not so arbitrarily, I keep seeing Mary as the bruised reed. There she is collapsing at Jesus' feet. The circumstances of life have um, pummeled her. She's weeping. She's sorrowful. Um, she, she doesn't have a leg to stand on. She's weak. She's humble. She falls at his feet. And Martha, I think of her as the flickering wick. She has faith, but not all the time. She has faith, but it's a weak faith, a flickering faith, a faith that needs some strength from outside herself. And um, Jesus delights in us, even in our weakness, whether it's a weakness of sorrow, um, that weakness that causes us to collapse, 
or the weakness of resolve, the weakness of faith, where our fl faith flickers and we say, just like the man in the Synoptic Gospels, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord Jesus, we believe, help our unbelief. We might simultaneously be Mary and Martha. We might be Mary and Martha at different times in our lives as we're encountering adversity. Our response to adversity is um, different. And yet, even in the midst of pain and suffering, even in the midst of the grief over death or even over our own sins, which is sort of a continual grief as we live out our lives, even as Christians, Jesus is there um, with us in compassion and mightily for us in conquering um, the foes of sin and death and the devil and forgiving us through his death and resurrection. Um, so let's pray and then you can ask me any questions. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, I ask right now that you, um, even in all your strength, in all your beauty, that you would encounter each one of us today. Um, wherever we are, whether we are shaking our fist um, and accusing you, whether we are um, wondering where you've been, whether we're collapsing in weakness at your feet, um, whether we're weeping uncontrollably in sorrow, wherever we are, Lord Jesus, we know that um, nowhere is too far for you. And so I ask, Lord, that you would reach out, you would encounter us with your compassion and your mercy and with your strong and mighty hand to save. So we ask this for your glory and the benefit of your people everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen.